Uh, You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. And while you're doing that, let me just say that over, over three years ago when Steve and I were praying about what sermon series to do, we both agreed that one particular concern was a lack of joy in our church. And we realized that there is no better path to joy than Jesus. In fact, there's no path at all to true and lasting joy apart from seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. Seeing Jesus means recognizing Jesus for all that He is, recognizing His beauty, His worth, His value, His power, His grace, His love. Savoring Jesus means enjoying experiencing, treasuring, exulting in all that He is. As you grow in learning to see Jesus more clearly and savor Jesus more richly, your joy will increase. Steve and I believe that. And so the goal of this series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, has been to increase your seeing and your savoring, thereby increase your joy. And there are a few texts in the Bible that so succinctly connect seeing and savoring with joy than the text we're about to read right now. My my focus is going to be on uh, the parable in verse 44, but I'll also read verses 45 and 46, because both parables go together, and at their heart, they're really essentially telling us the same thing, just in slightly different ways. So if you would please stand with me in honor of the reading of the words of our Lord, God, and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thus says our God, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on us who are sinners, who are struggling, who are broken, who are weak. Father, I pray for the Word of God, as the Word of God is preached, that you would bless the preaching of your Word in spite of the weak preacher. Your word is strong, your word is powerful, your word cuts to the heart, your word changes lives, and I pray that lives would be changed through the power of your spirit, working through the word, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In, uh, in 1992, it's a true story, in 1992, Peter Watling was a, a tenant farmer in England who had one day lost his hammer in the field. And so he hires a, a, a friend uh, named Eric with a metal detector to go looking for the lost hammer. And instead of finding a hammer, they, with this metal detector, they discovered the largest hoard of 5th century Roman artifacts in the world worth about $5 million. He could buy a lot of good hammers with that. Can you imagine that happening to you? You're just going through life. You're minding your own business, and you suddenly come into possession of millions of dollars. What would you feel? What would you do with your newfound wealth? Or take it a step further, how would you feel if you had wealth that was virtually limitless? 
In our text today, we read a parable of Jesus that describes a man who stumbles upon untold riches. And he tells us this story to teach us a very important, life-changing message. If you take Matthew 13, 44 seriously, it's going to radically change your life. If this verse is really true, then it's a game-changer, big time. Throughout Matthew 13, as we've seen these past few weeks, Jesus has been giving a series of of teachings about the kingdom of heaven through parables. And in these parables, Jesus is revealing mysteries of the kingdom, things previously obscured and hidden that are now being revealed to those who have spiritual ears to hear and spiritual eyes to see. So what is the kingdom of God? One definition I like in particular, I liked it so much it's in your notes, you can fill in the blank there, it's from Graham Goldsworthy, and he describes the kingdom as God's people in God's place under God's rule. The great Scottish preacher Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, the kingdom is the rule and reign of of God, the expression of his gracious sovereign will. To belong to the kingdom of God is to belong to the people among whom the reign of God has already begun. So there's a present reality in respect to the kingdom of God where the rule and reign of God is being expressed in a special way amongst his people. But, Pastor Steve's talked about this before, there's a, also a future reality to the kingdom that won't be fully expressed and enjoyed until the next age when Jesus ushers in a new order where there will be no death or dying, pain, sorrow, sickness, none of that. And God's people will live in never-ending joy in God forever. There's both an already and a not yet aspect to the kingdom. The kingdom is here now and can be enjoyed today, but we await its full expression and full enjoyment in the age to come. And the parable we're looking at today, Jesus wants to show us, uh, his disciples and us, his disciples today, and then something about the value of the kingdom. So let's take a closer look and, and see what we discover about the kingdom. Verse 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Now, this theme of the kingdom being hidden, being something not immediately obvious, something uh, overlooked, easily overlooked, uh, something that's almost imperceptible but turns out to be something great, that theme ties together several of Jesus' parables. We saw that in verse 31 with the parable of the mustard seed, and in verse 33 with the parable of the leaven. Jesus is telling us in these parables that the kingdom in many ways is hidden, not perceptible to most eyes, but nevertheless working and spreading and having great effects. But notice in verse 44, Jesus wants us to know not just the hidden nature of the kingdom, but also he wants us to know something about the incredible value and worth of the kingdom. That's why Jesus moves from more mundane things like mustard seeds and leaven to something that will capture everyone's attention. To treasure, untold wealth and riches. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like treasure hidden in a field. Now that's weird to most 21st century ears. Who buries their money in a field? Today, most of us put our money where? In banks or credit unions, if you listen to Clark Howard. 
But as we think about Jesus' parables, it's, it's helpful to step out of our Western, modern, 21st century world and try to hear the, the parables as a first century Jew would have heard them. We want to try to climb into their world. They didn't have banks as we know them back then. There wasn't a first bank of Galilee. There wasn't an associated credit union of Judea. One challenge in that day and age was that war was often on the horizon, and you never knew when invaders might come. So you needed to store your treasure someplace that would be virtually impossible for other people to find. And one of the safest places was just to put your stuff underneath the earth. People would bury their treasures in fields. Here's where it gets interesting. Sometimes the owners of the treasures would die, and their secrets would die with them. And perhaps another person would take possession of the field. And then maybe later on, he'd sell it to someone else and so on. All the while, this treasure is hidden and buried in the field and nobody knows about it. And therefore, there was a chance that many years or even generations later, somebody might stumble on vast riches that no one, not even the current owner of the field, would know about. So now, according to Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is like what? Like treasure hidden in a field. Now, Jesus' audience would have right away known what kind of man spent time in the fields. He obviously wasn't an owner. Uh, Rich owners don't work in fields. If the treasure is buried, the character in the story would have been digging. And if he was digging, then the man was probably a simple laborer who had been hired to work in the field. And what's interesting about the parable is that it's seemingly by accident that this man stumbles on the treasure. He's not out looking for it. He's just going through life, just minding his own business, doing his thing. What's Jesus telling us about the kingdom? Jesus is telling us that although the kingdom is hidden from many, it somehow reveals itself to certain people in the course of daily life. The kingdom presents itself suddenly in front of unsuspecting eyes, and then that requires an immediate, life-changing decision. Now, in the parable of the pearl, the setting's a little different. Unlike the laborer in verse 44, in verse 45, you get a guy Uh, who is out there searching for things of value, but let's not miss the important similarities between the two parables. In verse 45, you have yet another guy who's going about his daily business, doing his thing, and then, just like the guy in verse 44, he rather suddenly and unexpectedly encounters something of unbelievable value, a value that's been hidden from others. It's not obvious to everyone else. It is to him now that he's encountered it. So the main message of these two parables has to do with the value of the kingdom. In both stories, a man is suddenly confronted by something of amazing value, and in both stories, an important decision needs to be made in that moment. So let's go back to our day laborer in the the field, who's he's digging around, and, and suddenly his shovel hits something hard, clunk, and he digs around it, and after a while, he realizes that he's discovered a treasure of immense value that nobody, not even the owner of the field, knows about. Now, stepping into the world of the parable, this guy would have several options, wouldn't he? What are his options? What could could he do? He He could tell the owner. He could ignore it. He could leave it uncovered and just go about his business. But what does he do instead? He hides it. Now, you may be saying... I think he should have told the owner. Uh, this doesn't seem right, what this guy is, is doing. It says the man, man found this treasure and he covered it up. Is Jesus wanting us to emulate this guy? 
I think we need to step back for a moment and realize what the main point of the parable is again. Typically parables are not going to have, or typically parables are going to have one overarching point. And the point of this parable is not about how to conduct real estate transactions. However, you should know that uh, what this man did was actually legal in first century rabbinic law. The law stated that if you found a treasure and you, you li- if you lift it out of the ground, then you're legally bound to hand it over to the owner. However, if he leaves it in the ground, he could purchase the land and then he could have the land and he could have everything in it, including the treasure. All that would be his. And that's why he hides it. He knows the law. But again, let's remember, ethical real estate transactions are not the point of the parable. The main point of this parable is the value of the kingdom. That's what Jesus wants to teach us about. So the the, the man hides the treasure, and what's his emotional reaction? Not a hard question. Joy! Text says, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. I remember when I was a kid, something that was really popular was the publishing clearinghouse sweepstakes. Maybe they still do that now. They probably do, but it was really popular when I was a kid. Maybe you remember that. Do you remember, maybe if you're my age or older, you remember getting those letters in the mail with a fake check for like $10 million? And those ads were really impressive. You get that thing in the mail and you're like, whoa, what is this? And, and, and it was impressive, especially, you know, to a little kid like me. But then you take a closer look at that, at that letter and that check, and it says, you may have won $10 million, and kind of the air goes out of the balloon. And Anyone remember the commercials for the sweepstakes? Ed McMahon, he'd travel around the country with TV cameras, and he'd visit the winners at their house. And when Ed McMahon would knock on the door... And when he would present the winner with a check for $10 million, what was the reaction of the person who answered the door? Maybe it was disbelief at first, but what was the reaction after they realized this is for real? Did they say, "Uh, okay, thanks, and they just shut the door? Did they say, man, I am busy, McMahon. Can you come back later? No, their reaction was extreme joy, right? They're jumping up and down. They're hooting and hollering. They're collapsing on the ground. They're crying. Why? Why did they react that way? Same reason why this man in the parable is overflowing with joy. Because he knows that with these untold riches, his life would be changed forever. It's Jesus telling us about the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling us that possessing the kingdom... Being part of the kingdom, embracing and receiving the kingdom is about radical life change. And the the joy that comes with possessing the kingdom comes from the realization that everything is going to be better because of what the kingdom makes possible. And this kingdom is of immense value. That's the main point here. So let's step back into the world of the parable. This, This man in the story knows the surpassing value of the treasure that he's discovered. He's got joy, but more than that, what else does he do? Tells you what he does. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, what's that telling us about the value of the kingdom? 
It's telling us that the value of the kingdom far exceeds anything you might lose for the sake of the kingdom. You can lose everything you have. And if you have the kingdom, if you've discovered Christ and you have him, you have untold riches. Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. If you have Christ, you're rich. Does that mean if I become a Christian, I'll get a new house, nice new car, promotion at work, more possessions? No. There's nothing special about a a new house and a new car and more possessions. If you think that's what rich is, you've got your sights set way too low. There are people with new cars and new houses and lots of possessions who are going to hell. That's not riches. It's not the kind of riches that Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 8. When you enter into the kingdom of God, what do you gain? You get salvation, deliverance from hell, you get forgiveness of sins, you get God working and ruling on your behalf. You get a God who works all things together for your good, even the bad things. You get to rule and reign over the cosmos with Jesus in the next age. But that's not the fullness of the treasure that you get. Out of all the treasures, think about this, out of all the treasures... And gifts that God could give to you, what's the best thing that He could give you? What's the greatest and most superior treasure He could bestow upon you? If you're having trouble answering that question, let me ask it this way What's the most valuable thing in the universe? Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus and you'll be healed of cancer, say the televangelist. Come to Jesus and you'll get more money, especially if you give to my ministry. Again, people who tell you that are setting their sights way too low. Forget healing. Forget money. I'm saying instead, come to Jesus and you'll get Jesus. Is there anybody on TV preaching that now? How many churches preach that? I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for healing. I pray for people to be healed all the time, and sometimes God answers those prayers, but that's not the highest treasure. That's not the best thing. Come to Jesus, and you'll get Jesus, which is a treasure far superior to to those other trinkets people may hold up before you. The reason why the kingdom is so valuable is because of the value of Jesus, the value of being in relationship with him. Matthew 13, 44, such a powerful verse, such a powerful parable, isn't it, when you really think about it? It's powerful because it is illustrative of what it means to see and savor Jesus Christ. It's illustrative of what it means to be saved. When an unbeliever is saved, what happens? His eyes become open so that In Christ, he sees a treasure that he never saw before. Something previously hidden and obscured now becomes clear. And he weighs the value of the treasure that is Christ against the treasures of the world. And he says, no contest. No contest. Forget these lesser treasures. I'm all in for Jesus. That's what I want. 
And I know that looks different with a six-year-old convert than a 60-year-old convert. I get that. But the New Testament knows nothing of a believer who is indifferent to Jesus, who doesn't recognize something of the value of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done to the point that it changes their life. There's nothing of indifference to Jesus. Otherwise, Jesus could have could have uh, told this parable and said, you know, man found a treasure and he was like, ho-hum, and, you know, what's coming on TV later? And just kind of go about his life. No! In his joy, he goes. and does everything he can to acquire that treasure. And let's recognize that even after we believe, after conversion, part of the Christian journey is growing in our awareness and appreciation and understanding of the true treasure we have in Christ. Part of the the Christian journey is learning how to see and savor Christ as treasure more and more. Because the kingdom is already, but not yet. You and I as believers haven't been perfectly sanctified. We still battle against sin. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We just sang it. And when you sang it, you knew exactly what I was talking about because you've experienced that in your own life. We still battle against these things. We struggle against those old tendencies to treasure other things, to see and savor other things more than Jesus. If you're struggling against sin, and if you're breathing this morning, you're struggling against sin. If you're struggling against sin, part of the key to obtaining victory in the war against sin is to be reminded of and grow in our appreciation of the infinite treasure we have in Jesus The Christian life, the Christian life is a fight to see and savor Jesus Christ. The Christian life is a fight to believe Matthew 13, 44. The Christian life is a fight for faith to believe that seeing and savoring Jesus is worth more than seeing and savoring porn. To believe that seeing and savoring Jesus is worth more than spending 80 hours a week on the job while destroying your family because you're a workaholic and you treasure your career more than you treasure Christ. The Christian life is a fight for faith to believe that seeing and savoring Jesus is worth more and it's time better spent than living in constant anxiety and worry over what people, other people think about you because you treasure their approval more than God's. The way to defeat sin in your life is not simply through raw willpower. The problem is not your willpower. You are all very strong-willed when you're digging in your heels and you're going to sin no matter what. The problem is not your willpower. The problem is in that moment of sin, we are treasuring something more than we're treasuring Jesus. Can we just be honest about that? That's what happens when I sin. The problem is that we're not really believing Matthew 13, 44. In that moment of sin, we are believing that something is of greater value than seeing and savoring Jesus. The way to fight the temptations that beckon you into the pleasures of sin is not through raw willpower. The way to fight it is through the belief that a superior pleasure and satisfaction is found in Christ. The 18th century Scottish pastor Thomas Calmers preached a a sermon entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The gospel of Jesus Christ, he said, is expulsive in its power. It expels lesser treasures. 
it awakens a new appetite, a new affection, a new sense, a new taste, a new longing in the heart that nothing but Jesus can fill. And that longing and that delight in Christ expels every rival. Now, how does that happen? How does our affection and delight and our faith in the superiority of Christ over lesser treasures increase? There's at least two ways the Bible shows us our faith has increased. There's more, but, but two main means that I'm thinking of this morning. One way is through the Word. Scripture says, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. If you're, if you're not living in this book and taking it in like food for your soul, you will not treasure Christ, and you will be easily seduced by fake treasures. Your faith is also increased through prayer. The disciples once pleaded to Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. Or remember the one desperate father who cried out to Jesus? This may be my favorite prayer in the whole Bible. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When's the last time you prayed like that? In that moment of temptation. When's the last time you prayed, Lord, I'm struggling right now to believe that you are the treasure as described in Matthew 13, 44. I'm struggling to delight in the treasure as the man in this parable does. To believe that you are worth more than my health or my physical wealth and worth more than the fleeting pleasures I might gain from this sin right now. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I don't have time to get into all the ways to strengthen your faith, but if you want to talk more, if you need help, if you need encouragement, if you need somebody to pray with you, I'd love to talk to you more after we're done this morning. I don't have all the answers, but one thing I do know is that God intends for brothers and sisters in Christ to, to link arms and fight the fight of faith, not alone, but together. We're not meant to be isolated Christians drowning in our own struggles by ourselves. Instead, the scripture tells us to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, Hebrews 10, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Galatians 6 commands us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So let's do it. Let's, let's fight together to see and savor Jesus and embrace him as the all-satisfying treasure of our lives. All right, back to the parable. Jesus says about this man who discovered the treasure, then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has. And buys that field. Now don't miss that. He gladly loses everything that he might gain the treasure. I like John Piper's comments on this. He says, the, the kingdom of God is so valuable that losing everything on earth but getting the kingdom is a happy trade-off. Having the omnipotent saving reign of Christ in our lives is so valuable that if we lose everything in order to have it, it is a joyful sacrifice. Now, point of clarification. Is this parable telling us that we must give up all our possessions to be a part of the kingdom? Is it saying that I can buy the kingdom? That I can earn salvation? I'll give up all this stuff and, and I'll get salvation. I'll get the kingdom. Is that the point? No. The parable's purpose is not to delineate the details of how to be saved. Again, its purpose is to show us the surpassing value of the kingdom of God and that the value of what we receive is far greater than anything that we might lose in the process of receiving the kingdom. And make no mistake, friends, Jesus, receiving Jesus, may mean losing some things. 
Jesus teaches about the fact that there is a cost to being a disciple. There's a natural cost that comes with being a part of the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus says in, in Luke 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, in other words, love them less, do not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, love them less than me. And he says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Disciple must love these things less than he loves me. Now, what does this mean? This is what Jesus talks about. Any of you who do not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Peter had a fishing boat. He didn't give away his boat, at least not for a while. Paul had clothes. He didn't give them all away. Church, early church met in houses, so at least some people weren't homeless. What does that mean, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple? Being a disciple doesn't mean that you necessarily have to give up your house or your car. It doesn't mean that we necessarily give up all of our money or our concern for our physical safety, but it does mean that we are to regard all of those things as inferior treasures compared to Jesus. We are to love those things less than we love Jesus. It means that we must be willing to give them up if need be for the sake of Christ. We don't cling to homes like we cling to Jesus. We don't cling to our life and our safety like we cling to Jesus. We can't fully enjoy Jesus and be satisfied by him if we regard any other treasure as more valuable than him. I think of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world undergoing horrendous persecution because they're followers of Jesus. Even as we speak, believers are in jail. Some are being tortured. Some are awaiting execution. And in many cases, all they need to do to stop the pain is renounce Jesus. That's all you need to do. So why would anyone in their right mind in these places become a Christian when they know they could face that? And why would anyone in their right mind continue to be a Christian and suffer when all they have to do to end it is turn their backs on Jesus? Why would anyone in their right mind do this? I'll tell you why. It's because they are in their right minds. The world may regard such people as insane and foolish, but they aren't fools. And there's a reason why some of the most faithful and joyful believers are those amongst the persecuted church. It's because they've seen something the world hasn't seen. They they have discovered something that is hidden to most people. And they understand something to a degree that many of us in this room, myself included, are still struggling to better understand. To understand that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. How much we really realize and appreciate what we have in Christ directly impacts our joy. I think about those Christians living under horrendous persecution in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 34. And the author of Hebrews says this to them. Listen to this. This is so mind-blowing. Hebrews 10, 34. Listen to this. 
For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Joy? You got joy in the midst of persecution? In the midst of the plundering of your property by people who hate you as your house is being torched? That's crazy. That's ridiculous. How can you be like that when your home is being destroyed? Author of Hebrews tells us how. Listen again. Verse 34, Hebrews 10. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Check it out. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I wonder if that convicts you like it convicts me. That is amazing. I wonder if I'm the only one in this room who needs help from God to grow in my recognition of the treasure that I have in Christ to the point that I can have joy even in that kind of persecution. I don't know about you. But I want Hebrews 10.34 joy. I want Matthew 13.44 joy. I don't want temporary, fake, shallow, fleeting joy that's here today, gone tomorrow. Joy based on material possessions that will be gone before you know it. Joy based on titillating sexual immorality that leads to ruin in the end. A joy based on other people who will sooner or later disappoint you. A circumstantial joy that's easily lost when things go bad. I don't want that. I want what those Hebrew Christians had. Don't you? They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property because their hearts had been enthralled and captivated by a better possession and an abiding one. The one that no one could take away. Those Hebrew Christians are a living illustration of Matthew 13, 44. God, give Harbin's church that kind of joy. That kind of rock-solid confidence in in what we have in Christ. My property is being plundered. I'm being persecuted. I'm losing my possessions. I don't like it. I don't want that. I may even lose my life, but I've got a better possession. I've got an abiding treasure. I've got the kingdom, and in that, I rejoice. That's the kind of mindset I want, and I know many of you want that too. And I believe it's available. As we go to the scriptures and see more of Jesus and discover everything that he is for us. And as we plead with God the Father in prayer to increase our recognition and appreciation of the treasure we have in Christ. And as we stir up one another in this body to love and to good works. Commending Christ to one another through our trials, through our afflictions. God will help us. Yes, there can be a great cost in following Jesus. Yet the parable of the hidden treasure reminds us that what we receive with the kingdom of God exceeds by a long shot anything we might lose. Here's here's another uh, teaching of Jesus in Mark 8. He says this, Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? If losing certain relationships comes as a consequence of getting the kingdom, it's worth it. If getting the kingdom leads to losing an easy, comfortable life in America and having my throat slit on the mission field, it's worth it. What I get in Jesus far exceeds what I lose every time. The way of Jesus is difficult and full of suffering, but it pales in comparison 
to what we receive through Christ. Think about the, uh, the kind of suffering Paul went through. What did Paul go through? What did he give up? What did he suffer? You think about the life of Paul and then what he says in 2 Corinthians 4. So we do not lose heart. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The Apostle Paul lost much in receiving the kingdom. But he says this in Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth. Is that... Talking about value again. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Jesus is that good, friends. Paul was a graphic living illustration of Matthew 13, 44. All right, so you're convinced, right? Christ is the supreme treasure. But maybe there's somebody here that doesn't know how to obtain it. How do you get the treasure in the first place? I mean, I've been talking about enjoying the treasure you already have. Well, how do you get it? Well, in the parable, the man bought this field to acquire the treasure. You understand, we don't buy Jesus. We don't buy the kingdom. We don't buy salvation. Instead, the kingdom is received by those who are bankrupt. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit means to recognize that you're spiritually bankrupt. You're a sinner. You have nothing to offer God in and of yourself, and, and that's the first step to receiving the kingdom. It's only for those who humbly acknowledge that they're spiritually bankrupt, indeed, in massive spiritual debt. The first step is to admit that you're a sinner, guilty before God, deserving of his punishment. But then you need to realize that Jesus has paid the debt of sinners on the cross. In his death, he took the punishment sinners deserve, and in his resurrection, he offers new life for all who will come to him. And so now, if you trust in Jesus' work on the cross, your debt will be paid, and you'll be forgiven. Jesus says this in Mark 10, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter into it. You don't need to be an expert theologian to enter the kingdom. You just need to place simple, childlike faith in Jesus Christ. And once you take that step, your spiritual bankruptcy will be transformed into untold riches, and your life will be forever changed. If you're considering Christ and not sure if he's worth it, the Holy Spirit says this to you this morning through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. For the rest of us. And here is where I'm closing. For the rest of us who have already received Jesus. Let's pray that God would give us an increased awareness and appreciation. For the true value of the kingdom of Christ. And that our lives would reflect the treasure that we have. You know, you can often spot a materially wealthy person by what they wear, by the car they drive, by the home they live in. Their lives are filled with the adornments of their riches. Christian brother, Christian sister, if Jesus Christ is the treasure of your life, does it show? Does it show in your life in, in such a way that it's clear to people, not just right now, this morning at Harbin's Church, 
But will it be clear at 6 o'clock this evening as you interact with your family? Will it be clear at 1 in the morning when you can't sleep and you're a mouse click away from sinful pleasures online? Will it be clear at 10 o'clock Monday morning in the office when your boss is mistreating you? Does your life put on display the value of Christ to your heart? That's an important question because Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Does your life show the world that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field? Do you believe the kingdom of heaven's like that? If so, now what? It's your move. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to believe and receive the word of God. And that we would treasure you above all things. In Jesus' name, amen.